Thinking Aloud, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we are going to explore philosophy and psychical research the study of the fringe phenomena of consciousness and how it has impacted philosophers throughout history. With me is Jason Reza Giorgiani, who is a faculty member of the New Jersey Institute of Technology. Welcome, Jason. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you, Jeffrey. It's a pleasure to be with you, too. When we think of psychical research, uh, many people think of the, the British Society for Psychical Research founded about 1850, but actually philosophers have been interested in this area of exploration going back to the ancient Greeks. That's right. The word psychical actually comes from the Greek psyche, which uh, means both mind and soul. The Greek concept doesn't distinguish between the two and uh, an understanding of the soul or the mind as part of nature as a whole has been the central concern of philosophy since the very first philosopher. Uh, the first man that we know of to have called himself a philosopher was Pythagoras of Samos. And Pythagoras spent 22 years in Egypt studying with the priests of the Egyptian temples until he was arrested by the Persian army during their occupation of Egypt and brought back to Babylon, the capital of the Persian Empire, where he studied Babylonian astronomy and the precursors of natural science in Babylon for another decade before returning to his native Greece. Uh, instead of returning to the island of Samos, where he was from, he actually set up a school in a Greek colony in Italy and uh, Plato, who is widely regarded as the founder of Western philosophy, became a member of the Pythagorean order after the execution of Socrates. In Pythagoras's attempt to understand nature, uh, all manner of what we now think of as psychical phenomena figure in prominently. And, and I suppose it's fair to say that in, in the ancient world these things were just matter-of-fact. There were temples and oracles and uh, cults of, of every sort, people going into altered states of consciousness through numerous means. There were mystery schools and uh, what we think of today as sort of the exotic fringe phenomenon of consciousness in, in the ancient world were pretty mainstream. Yes, but the significant point with Pythagoras was that because he had such an intense and prolonged exposure to the mythologies and uh, religious worldviews of cultures other than his own and cultures whose um, religious views conflicted with one another, the Egyptian and the Persian, to take two examples, he was intent on understanding what the soul was in itself, mm -hmm. apart from the prejudices and superstitions of uh, the traditional cultures of the time. And so this really is, in that sense, the beginning of psychical research as a uh, natural scientific approach to uh, fathoming the nature of consciousness. And, and how, uh, in, in your view, did Pythagoras define the soul or explain the soul? Well, uh, 
we don't have any writings directly from Pythagoras, but through Plato's school, the picture that we have is that for the Pythagoreans, there were three orders of reality. Uh, the natural world, what we've come to think of as the material world, an abstract order of being uh, that can be grasped through mathematical thinking, mm -hmm. and something in between that, a kind of imaginal world. Uh, a world where we have something like sensory perception, um, a dream world, as it were, that uh, intermingles elements of abstract ideas with the kinds of sensory experiences, not just sight, but also sound and, and touch, that we have in the material world. And the Pythagoreans, um, in particular, put a great deal of emphasis on the idea of reincarnation, mm -hmm. which was alien to traditional Greek religion. Uh, so they viewed the cultivation of the mind in some ways as a preparation for death and rebirth. Pythagoras himself is said to have lived many lifetimes. Mm -hmm. And uh, to my understanding, of course, we normally think of reincarnation as associated with the Hindu philosophers, but I, I believe that that sort of came along later in Hindu philosophy, that Pythagoras uh, perhaps preceded uh, the philosophers of India. Uh, that's possible. Mm -hmm. um, there are some writings that claimed Pythagoras had made it all the way to India, but they're considered generally unreliable. Mm -hmm. So we don't know whether he arrived at this notion on his own. Uh, some have suggested that the s mystery school of Orpheus influenced this view and in the Pythagorean order, but then again, it just pushes mm -hmm. the question further back. Uh, well, can we talk a bit about the Greek mystery schools? My understanding is that all the prominent citizens of ancient Greece were, were part of these traditions, and at the same time, they were sworn to secrecy about them. Yes, well, uh, the Pythagorean uh, order adopted that practice from the mystery schools, and uh, the most important reason why it did so was because it had a political program. The Pythagorean order was actually the only place in the ancient world where women could receive an education equal to that of men. And uh, they had set up schools in uh, southern Italy, and they began to have such a degree of influence over uh, policies in the various polises, the various Greek city-states in that area, that eventually it provoked resentment from the traditional aristocracy who rallied the masses to eventually burn down the schools. Mm -hmm. And Pythagoras uh, barely escaped with his life. These schools were refounded throughout the Greco-Roman world. Uh, as I mentioned, Plato himself attended one of them. And centuries after Plato's time, uh, Hypatia of Alexandria wound up being the director of the equivalent of a Platonic Pythagorean school in the Greek colony of Alexandria in Egypt. Uh, so what began as a fringe educational movement, fringe alternative educational movement, wound up by the end of the classical period becoming the educational establishment of the mm -hmm. Greco-Roman world. Unfortunately, it was uh, torched by um, Christian masses during the 
uh, mm -hmm. Christian takeover of the Greco-Roman Empire. And, and Hypatia, as I understand it, may have been the leading scholar of her era. She was the leading scholar of her era and an heir to the Pythagorean idea that and Platonic idea that there was no essential distinction between men and women mm -hmm. in the intellectual realm. And the mystery schools, um, as I uh, studied them, emphasized the idea of uh, inculcating through various ritual processes and probably altered states of consciousness an awareness uh, of the eternity of, of the soul, that it survives the physical death. Yes, uh, in some cases they would use natural caves, grottos, in the countryside of Italy essentially as sensory deprivation chambers and they had uh, developed certain hallucinogenic compounds from natural uh, plants mm -hmm. and uh, they would try to understand the illusory nature of this world of experience that we're in by evoking equally captivating uh, virtual realities, as it were, inside mm -hmm. these grottos. Mm -hmm. That's one of the practices that they used. And you see this influence Plato in the Republic in his allegory of the cave. Mm -hmm. The idea that there is uh, an inner reality which is more real and more profound than the ephemeral external world we perceive through our senses. Yes, but essentially we're living in a world of shadows projected onto a cave wall. Mm -hmm and uh, we're really prisoners in this cave but have the capacity to liberate ourselves and perceive the true reality outside of it. And, and the true reality uh, is something of a platonic reality. Yeah, uh, this is the interesting thing in terms of the arc of um, psychical research and the history of philosophy. We begin with uh, the psychical understood as something transcending the natural world. And we end in thinkers like Bergson and William James with an understanding that uh, our mechanistic, materialistic model of the natural world is simply a framework that has practical significance and that the spiritual is not a separate order than the natural. Mm -hmm. That we're simply filtering supernature, as it were in order to develop technologies that serve our purposes in one way or another, but that the spiritual world is this mm -hmm. world. Well, you've jumped forward about 2,000 years to uh, the era of Henri Bergson and William James, both of whom, great philosophers uh, who were presidents of the British Society for Psychical Research. Mm -hmm. um, that's that's quite a leap forward. It didn't happen. Well, the uh, leap forward is is across a fulcrum that really uh, is epitomized by Rene Descartes. Mm -hmm. So, essentially, what we had with uh, the Christianization of the Roman Empire was a need on the part of the church authorities to limit any speculation concerning the spiritual world. Mm -hmm. Now this uh, predominated for over a thousand years and when in the early Renaissance thinkers like Giordano Bruno began to raise similar questions as the Pythagoreans uh, independently from church dogma, they met with serious resistance. Uh, even though Bruno, um, who is essentially 
for our purposes, a Neo-Pythagorean, Neoplatonic thinker. Who was burned at the stake, as I recall. Yes, despite having the backing of Henry III, the King of France, to go to places such as Oxford University and lecture. In the end, he was burned at the stake in a public market in Rome. So the natural philosophers of the time got the idea that uh, it would be better to try to understand the natural world without any references to the spiritual. Mm. So what people often miss when they read Rene Descartes is the extent to which his framing of mind and matter as two completely distinct substances where the mind is entirely abstract and uh, matter is conceived of in terms of pure extension, in terms of a homogeneous grid of space-time, uh, and conceived of mechanistically, where all of the interactions of elementary particles have to obey mathematical laws. This radical dichotomy between a rather hollow conception of the mind and uh, or vacuous conception of the mind and an entirely mechanistic natural world is motivated in part by uh, a concern with uh, the church not wanting people to speculate about the spiritual world. Mm -hmm. So in Descartes' Metaphysical Meditations, he explicitly rules out a wide variety of psychical phenomena, clairvoyance, extrasensory perception, um, out-of-body experiences. Uh, he makes a great deal of the fact that if we were in waking life to have experiences with a dreamlike quality, we would know for certain that our senses had deceived us. And people take Descartes at his word when he you know, makes these arguments, but in point of fact, he had paranormal experiences himself. In fact, uh, his philosophical enterprise was in large part motivated by them. He kept a notebook of these experiences, in particular a so-called night of dreams that mm -hmm. he had where he was visited by his bedside, at his bedside by a demonic being and uh, shown um, copper plate portraits in a book that happened to be brought over uh, to the inn where he was staying the next day by a visiting painter. Mm -hmm. So he had a precognitive dream. Mm -hmm. And um, so Descartes knew that many of the things that he ruled out as impossible, in fact, were genuine human experiences. And then there's the fact that letters have surfaced which suggest Descartes was involved with the Rosicrucian order. Mm -hmm. This is very peculiar because Descartes had an orthodox Jesuit education, and Descartes' personal publicist was one of the hammers of the Holy Inquisition. The hammers? Yeah, one of the hammers of the Holy Inquisition. These were the people who would bring down the gavel, as it were, with mm -hmm. the verdict, burn the witch. Yeah. So uh, some researchers have speculated that rather than being a Rosicrucian, some people thought Descartes was a Rosicrucian, he was involved with these people because he had been sent as a Jesuit spy to infiltrate mm -hmm. the Rosicrucian order. Now, perhaps we could define the Rosicrucian order a little bit in this era. We're, we're talking, I think, 17th century or so? Uh, we are talking, yes, the 1600s, and the Rosicrucians, okay, so 
most people think of the Renaissance and the Protestant Reformation mm -hmm. as an attempt to break away from Catholic dogma and elaborate divergent visions of Christianity. But there was a neo-pagan strain in the Renaissance. And what some people meant by Protestant and general reformation mm -hmm. in that time period was a return to the neo-pagan wisdom tradition. The Rosicrucians were not as explicit about that as Giordano Bruno was, but one can't blame them given what happened to Bruno. Yeah. I think though that in fact they, they were essentially neo-pagans who mm. were trying to uh, resurrect the Pythagorean and Platonic approach to psychical phenomena and nature in general. And, and to some degree they, they played a role in ushering in what uh, historians sometimes think of as the Age of Enlightenment. Well, here's the thing. Mm -hmm. The Age of Enlightenment is grounded more on this dichotomy between an abstract mind and a materialistic and mechanistic nature, which Immanuel Kant, who's uh, the philosopher most commonly associated with the Enlightenment, he wrote this short essay read by nearly everyone uh, you know, in an introductory philosophy course, What is Enlightenment? Mm. And Kant basically adopts Descartes' mind-matter dualism. Mm -hmm. And Kant does that, in other words, Kant banishes this intermediary world, this imaginal world. He does that knowing full well that it's real. Mm -hmm. And we know this because uh, Kant spent uh, years in his youth reading the entirety of Emanuel Swedenborg's Arcana Coelestia. And Swedenborg being a, a scientist and also a mystic, a great Swedish uh, founder of a, uh, the Swedenborgian church. Yes, and whose visions were predominantly concerned with uh, this spectral world that is neither abstractly conceptual, abstractly intelligible, nor material. I and think of it as the world of mythos, of, of yes. mythology, a very powerful archetypal uh, interaction. The archetypal that, reality. Yeah, that shape in many ways who we are and help connect the individual human with the realm of the infinite. Mm -hmm. And so Kant uh, studied Swedenborg very seriously and rumors of this got out while he was still trying to attain tenure. Mm. This is in his early years as a professor. And uh, out of fear that he would not attain tenure, he penned uh, this rather disingenuous, uh, somewhat sarcastic book, Dreams of a Spirit Seer. Mm the tone of which conflicts with its content. The tone is mocking of Swedenborg, but if you pay close attention to the content, you see that actually Kant thinks that uh, there's a lot of worth in, in some in, of the things In fact, Kant uh, made a study of uh, an example uh, of clairvoyance in which Swedenborg uh, predicted or, or seemed to see clairvoyantly a fire in, in Gothenburg, a Swedish city, hundreds of miles from the dinner party where the event occurred. Yeah, Kant independently investigated some of the claims of Swedenborg's psychic abilities. Mm -hmm. And despite having the other point that's very significant is this is not uh, incidental to the structure of Kant's thought. If you look at Kant's groundwork of the metaphysics of morals, probably his, his most famous work, the basic structure of that work 
is elaborated from out of the reflections on Swedenborg that you see in Dreams of a Spirit Seer. Mm -hmm. So Swedenborg had a deep impact on uh, Kant's development of this distinction between the phenomenal world and the noumenal world and a sort of moral republic mm -hmm. in the noumenal world. But he interprets these ideas from Swedenborg in a dualistic, neo-Cartesian way that abstracts them. Mm -hmm. um, well, in the modern era, since the Renaissance, there's been uh, uh, predominantly a materialistic metaphysics uh, in Western culture, I think, that uh, uh, tended to suppress the, the exploration of uh, consciousness and, and paranormal phenomenon associated with consciousness, yet many philosophers uh, realized they had to grapple with these things. Yeah, what happened essentially was that uh, Descartes and Kant's notions of the mental reality, the mental substance, were so vacuous mm -hmm. that natural philosophers in the generations after them decided that they could simply be done away with. Uh, most prominently, Julien Offray de la Métrie was a neo-Cartesian materialist who uh, essentially laid the groundwork for the reductionistic biological explanation of the human mind mm -hmm. as nothing more than the brain yep. interacting with other organs. This is significant because the people who set up the cult of reason during the French Revolution, who attempted to abolish traditional religion together with monarchy and set up a scientific society mm -hmm. in the early years of the French Revolution, were avid readers of people like La Métrie. And so indirectly, a kind of Cartesian mechanism wound up at the basis of a vision for reorganizing society that failed precisely because people like Robespierre saw that it would leave the world without a moral foundation. Mm -hmm. So then you have Robespierre set up his cult of the supreme being as a reaction against the cult of reason, which eventually led to the failure of the French Revolution and Napoleon's restoration of Catholicism. Well, you have referred to more recent philosophers, Bergson and, and William James, who began to resurrect the idea of uh, psychical research especially as, as being part of the natural order. Right. So we gained by losing. It's mm -hmm. a kind of a dialectical movement where, uh, you know, you have Pythagorean and Platonic recognition of these as legitimate human experiences, but they're framed in a way that the psychical is a different order of experience than uh, the mundanely material, and where our ordinary everyday world is uh, a world of shadows. Mm -hmm. Then you lose the psychical altogether, and thinkers like Descartes and Kant and the materialists in their wake. And then when it's regained, and uh, Bergson and James there's an understanding that the materialism of someone like Descartes is really a reflection of our attempt to get a better handle on the world. That, uh, as Bergson put it, there's a distinction between intellect and intuition. Mm -hmm. And our technical intellect has come to predominate over intuition to the extent that it has atrophied. Mm -hmm. And he foresaw a reemergence of uh, animal instinct in the form of intuition 
that would allow us to uh, redevelop some of the psychical abilities that he thought we share in common with animals all the way down the rung of the evolutionary ladder. Mm -hmm. So uh, on this analysis, our modern scientific world pictures are really models that allow us to have a better grasp of the world and to inhabit the world more effectively through technical development. And the mistake that we've made is to take them to be a mirror of nature. Mm -hmm. The element that's uh, more significant in terms of James's thought is how the scientific approach to psychical phenomena impacts religious experience. James recognized that once you admit that these are natural phenomena, there ought not to be any categorical distinction between science and religion. And this is precisely what the church was afraid of when it burned Bruno at the stake that Bruno represented the reemergence of a neoclassical science which would not draw any ultimate distinction between science and spirituality. Mm -hmm. And William James uh, pretty much exemplified this. He considered the founder of American psychology, uh, the founder of American pragmatic philosophy, and as a president of the Society for Psychical Research, someone who uh, uh, advocated uh, the application of empirical science to exploring questions like life after death. Yes, and uh, one of the most striking features of his psychology of religion is the idea that even if there are gods, even if there are superhuman beings, uh, what they intend to do with us is not necessarily in our own interests. We ought to develop our capacities ourselves to the utmost. and. Um, self-determine our mm -hmm. course in life. Hey, thank you so much for being with me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure covering about 2,500 years of human philosophical thought with you in the last 25 minutes or so. You've been uh, very thoughtful and articulate in expounding the subtle threads of this history, and uh, it's been a great pleasure for me. Thank you, Jeffrey, for inviting me. It's, it's been wonderful to be with you. I look forward to interviewing you again. And thank you for being with us.